You can turn in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 50. We'll be looking at the whole chapter this evening, Isaiah 50. This is the third of what are uh, collectively called Isaiah's servant songs, four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, prophetic declarations of what will be the work of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that often we learn more about Jesus' life from the prophecies of the Old Testament, even sometimes than we do in the gospel narratives. So here we have a wonderful declaration from the Lord and uh, words about our Lord Christ. Isaiah chapter 50, this is God's holy word. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you've kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, the preaching of his word. Now, even though the sun rises and sets every day, even if it be cloudy, uh, in, a very real this way, in a very real way, this world lives in perpetual darkness. Now, we know that in the fall of man, uh, the light of God, the light of the revelation of God was dimmed. No longer would man know the true, the good, the beautiful, but would grope about in darkness, trying to feel his way in this world. And what becomes clear to every person at some point in their life is the reality of the human catastrophe. Sometimes this comes suddenly. Someone's walking their own way, all's going well, and then it dawns. Quick suffering, a striking turn in their life, and you realize we're living in the human catastrophe. Perhaps it comes slowly, and after little thing, relationship, person, 
event, the small sufferings, you realize, what is this world but a world of sin and misery, as our catechism says? And in this darkened world, we need hope and light. We need the light at the end of the tunnel, as it were, that motivation that allows us to persevere through such trials, to endure in this sort of world. We need the light of rescue, the light of God's salvation. Now, mankind has repeatedly tried to devise his own light, try to figure out how we can get out of this human catastrophe. And mankind's antidote that he continually manufactures is called optimism. And this optimism that looks for light within instead of light without might come in two forms. There's moral optimism, where people think that really deep down we are just all good. And therefore, if we can train people well enough, if we can educate them well enough, enlighten them, wake them up, then they will see and live right, and we will progress beyond the darkness. Moral optimism, or perhaps technological optimism, that we can fix all our problems just by the right medications, the right technological innovations, the right helps to health and success and comfort. Some look to the state, some look to the marketplace, but all of these are vain hopes of salvation because they all look to the light of man instead of the light of God. They're all seeking to replace God with our own means of salvation. Their excuse is to not fear God, to not obey Christ, to not rely completely on the one true and living God. And this message from Isaiah tonight goes out to all the optimists that look to the light of man instead of the light of God. This is, his actually, this is Isaiah's concluding thought. If you take a look at verse 11, he says, Behold all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. And then he says, as it were sarcastically here, Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you've kindled. He's saying people in this world, they're kindling their own fires, getting their own torches, self-made light. And he says, just try walking in that light. Try walking in the light of man that you will devise apart from God. What's the end of it? This you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Optimism without God leads to death. The greatest dreams of utopia always end in the suffering and destruction of masses of people. We need a better light. We need the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this message isn't just for the humanists. It's for us even who have known Christ, because we still live in a shadow land. Our lives are still touched by darkness, the darkness of sin, the darkness of suffering, and we in our own ways are tempted to rely on our own strength in our difficulties. Perhaps we're uh, prone to rely on our savings accounts or our good moral reasoning or common sense or even to rely on our consistent religious activities. We are prone to self-reliance, to forgetting God's work. I said, eventually, everyone wakes up to the reality of the human catastrophe. And the constant temptation in this broken world, and even for us, is to blame God for the darkness to blame God for the catastrophe. We ask, where is God in all this darkness and pain? Why are things the way they are? Israel is in exile when they're receiving this prophecy from Isaiah. They feel like they're in darkness. They've been cast out of their land. They're oppressed and enslaved by a foreign power. 
And they're asking, God, why have you done this to us? And they're hurling two false accusations at God, which God answers by way of two rhetorical questions. Take a look at verse 1 in our text. Thus says the Lord, he says to Israel, where's your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Israel is accusing God of sending them away like a spouse divorcing a spouse. The mother is is the, the people of Israel, the one that bore them. And God is responding saying, try to find me that certificate of divorce. Now in this culture, the certificate of divorce was a particular type of divorce where the husband would send away the wife for a um, a non-significant moral reason. These were the arbitrary divorces, where if she displeased him, he would write the certificate of divorce and send her away. And God's saying, I didn't write a certificate of divorce. You You are not away from me arbitrarily, from my whimsy and my problems. God is faithful to his people. The people are faithless to God. And similarly, the people question God, saying, you've sold us as slaves. You've sold us. And God says, to which of my creditors is it that I've sold you? Again, in desperate situations, a family that was in debt to someone might sell a child to pay off their debt to a creditor. God was not in debt to the foreign gods or to any powers that he needed to sell off his people. But in both of these cases, the people are saying, God, you did this to us for no reason. It was capricious. You had to pay a debt. You're just divorcing us. No. The people are separated from God, but God is not the one to blame. And don't today, people always want to blame God for the brokenness of the world, for the sin and suffering we experience. They say God has abandoned us. But when we wonder about the darkness, we need to look squarely at ourselves Because as he says, continuing in the verse, he says, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So why are we in this state of catastrophe? Human sin. Human sinfulness. We're the ones running away from God. And the problem that these moral optimists, that these technological optimists face, is that they can never outrun or outsmart the human heart. That propensity to sin, to wickedness and evil that we all have within. The human catastrophe, the darkness, is on account of human sin. Sometimes it's the result of our own sins. Sometimes we suffer as the result of others' sins against us. Sometimes it's the sin of Adam and the brokenness of this world. But God is not the one to blame And if we realize this, then we might say, well, God, why haven't you shown yourself to us? Why haven't you told us how to fix things? And people in this world always say, well, if God was really there, really he would show himself to us. He'd make it plain. But again, God responds with his own question. Look at verse 2. He says, why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? God says, I called. And God called his people through his prophets again and again, through the preaching of his witnesses. He called them to turn to God, to avoid the results of their sin. And still today, God is calling people through his preachers. And how many, like Israel, turn a deaf ear? Sit in church week after week, hear sermon after sermon, but don't respond to the God that offers salvation. 
And if you're here, you've heard. You've heard the good news of Christ. We've sung of it. We've prayed of it. And there's no excuse for saying, God, why haven't you made yourself more clear? We always want God to pass just one more test. This reminded me of, of an old friend of mine named Bryn, who I would often sit in our college cafeteria with and talk about God. And he was struggling with whether he could believe in God. And I remember him saying, um, well, if that microwave right over there would just levitate, then I would believe in God. I remember I, I was reminded of um, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16, and I, and I told him, I said, you wouldn't. You wouldn't believe in God if that microwave levitated. Because Jesus told us that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and um, he, he said, if someone could rise from the dead and tell my family, then they would believe. And what did Christ say to him? He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they won't hear them, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. God has spoken clearly through his prophets and his greatest prophet, the Lord Jesus. In these last days, Hebrews says, God has spoken to us by his son. And he speaks still, Christ speaks through the preaching of the word. And yet we live in a time where people have hardened their hearts to the word of the Lord. We see the darkness and the failings in our own land, and we're tempted to doubt. We feel as this nation hardening themselves against Christ permanently. We think, is this hopeless? And if we're feeling that, God responds to us with his words in verse 2. Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Have I no power to deliver? We're always tempted to sell God short, to think his hand's just not quite long enough to reach to us. His power's not quite great enough to really work a miracle. And we're tempted to doubt like Israel was. They're in a bleak situation. They're in exile. They're thinking, how can we get out of this mess? And perhaps we think, ah, this world, this nation is done for. The secularists are going to win but we need to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness past and his promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so he says to his people, halfway through verse 2, Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst, I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. He's reminding them of his deliverance of the exodus, the parting of the sea when they went through on dry land, and think, if any situation was hopeless, it was Israel under Egyptian slavery, bound. And what does God do? He parts the seas to lead his people through. And God's people in exile needed to be reminded of God's deliverances past, just as we need to be reminded that God is still powerful to deliver. Don't sell God short. His hand is long to save. His power is great to pull. And so... God will bring salvation. God will bring a light into the darkness through a greater prophet than Moses, a greater deliverer than one who would just lead people through the Red Sea, but through the servant, the servant we're about to meet in our text. Look at verse 4. We turn from the Lord's declaration to the declaration of the servant himself. Where the servant says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. 
I turned not backwards. Here we learn of the servant. The servant submissively listens to the word of God. Every morning, the servant listens. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The word for those who are taught, there's the idea of a disciple, one who is being trained in the ways of God. And isn't that amazing? Even Jesus, morning by morning, needed to hear the word of God. And let's not over-spiritualize this and forget that Christ took on our humanity. He didn't just get these downloaded revelations directly from the Spirit, but he learned from the Scriptures, just as we ought to. Jesus learned the Word of God morning by morning as God awakened his ear to hear. How we can learn from Christ here. And here we see that the light of salvation God brings is going to come by the teaching of the truth. There's not going to be any light of salvation without truth being proclaimed. The truth that illumines the darkness we're in and the way of escape. That makes sense of the human catastrophe. We need this revelation from God. Uh, just yesterday, we were, as a family, playing some games. And in this one game we were playing, you have to look at all these words that are clues and find out what they're all related to. What's the one word that all these things relate to? And it's really fun watching people's faces as they're looking at them, trying to figure it out, and then all of a sudden, the light bulb goes on, they get it, and they get the word. So they're trying to guess a word, and they see clues like single, blood, imprisonment, jail, and they're thinking, what could all these words have in common? And then it dawns on them, sell. A blood cell, single cell, a prison cell, and it's this great moment. And in this world, there's all these um, diverse facts and experiences. The sufferings, but then there's joys, there's good and there's evil, and we wonder how to make sense of it all. And in vain do we try ourselves to find that illuminating principle. And so we need a word from God that comes to us, that illumines our minds, where we say, I get it. The world is good because God created it good. There's evil because we fell in sin. There's hope in the redemption of Christ and a glory that he's coming, recreating all things. The teaching of truth from the servant helps make sense of the reality of the world we live in. And his word, that's the word that sustains the weary. He says, I know how to speak a word in season to those who are weary and sustain him. Christ's word, his illuminating word, sustains us in our troubles. And if you are weary, if you are heavy laden, hear the word of Christ that says, come to me and find rest. This servant is going to be a prophet and a teacher of truth. But secondly, we learn in verse 6 that this servant is a willing sufferer. Take a look at verse 6. He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. The Lord Jesus willingly gave himself to the way of grief and the way of suffering. He was willing to go all the way to the cross. We know that this text relates to the Lord Jesus as these things happened to him. The greatest disgrace you could have in that culture, being spat upon, 
perhaps the second greatest disgrace, having your beard pulled out. Jesus underwent these disgraces. And as the Lord and sustainer of all things, isn't it incredible that Jesus took on a flesh that could feel pain, the one who never knew pain, the one who had never taken on this body, took on those hair follicles where the beard could be pulled out. He took on the flesh of a back that could be whipped and striped. The Lord Jesus even sustained the growth of the tree that would become that wooden cross that his body would be pierced onto. The servant was a willing sufferer. And he says, I've set my face like a flint. A flint, boys and girls, is if you've ever seen people, they try to spark two things together to make a fire. And the flint, you have to hold it really steady and strike it to get sparks. And in that picture, Jesus, he was resolute. Luke 9 says he set his face towards Jerusalem. That means he set his face towards the suffering for sinners like you and like me. And how could he be so resolute? How could we, like Christ, in the face of suffering that's coming before us, maybe you're facing a sickness, a suffering that is down the road, how can you be resolute? Well, Jesus put his hope and confidence in God. He says in verse 8, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. People were accusing Christ, weren't they? False accusations, vile accusations, saying he's a criminal, saying he's a blasphemer, saying he deserves to die because he called God his father. He said he would raise up the stones of the temple. And yet, he says, the one who vindicates me is near. And how did the Lord God vindicate his Christ but by raising him from the dead? Raising him from the dead, solidifying all the truth he ever spoke, all the things he ever did to say, this is my beloved son, who is now the risen, reigning, victorious king. And so this sacrificing truth teller is the one God has risen to reign over all things. And in his life and death, light has broken into the darkness of this world. Hope has dawned in Christ himself, who says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. And this light is still shining from heaven, still showing us the way to God. And so this calls for a response in us. This text calls for a response explicitly in verse 10. This is the key verse. Take a look with me, if you will. Verse 10. Another question. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the Lord. Perhaps you are walking in a time of darkness darkness due to your sins, darkness in your sufferings. Perhaps you feel like you can't find peace in conscience or just hope in the pain. And truly, again, we all live to some extent in this shadow land, sin and suffering that we all experience to different extents, feeling perhaps bleak like Israel in exile, wondering what can God do, longing for that peace, that safety, that health. 
And the simple call to each one of us tonight is to trust in the name of the Lord and to rely upon our God. And what does this look like but entrusting yourself entirely to the Lord's loving care, resting on Him to bring you safely through? Relying on God, trusting in God, giving ourselves entirely to Him. When I was thinking of this image, I was reminded of um, the advice you're given, how it's really difficult to try to save a person who's drowning. Because the drowning person is so desperate to find something to hang on to, to pull them up. They'll grab at anything. And, and if you go to try to help them, they'll grab onto you and can sometimes even drown you. But if a drowning person is to have the best hope of rescue, it's when the lifeguard comes, they surrender and give themselves, even though they think they might sink if they stop struggling and allow one stronger to pull them safely to shore. And not to think of this in terms of a synergistic salvation, but in our struggles and pains, we so often want to look to ourselves for salvation. We're desperate to claw to anything, to, to claw back our, our health, our time, our struggles. Maybe we, we want to hang on to our bank account if it'll just hold out. We can hang on to our spouse if they can just hold us up. Maybe we want to just hang on to a pastor thinking they can deliver us. We are prone to rely on anything other than God, even prone to rely on our own works of religion, our own church attendance, to look to anything other than to give up and surrender ourselves to God's care. None of these things that come from within can deliver. Only our Savior can deliver us. And this text calls us to trust God in this way, to rely wholeheartedly on Him. And it tells us who these people are, the type of people that trust and rely on God. What are the evidences of trusting and relying on God? He asked in the question, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness trust in the name of the Lord. The ones who fear God and obey the servant. That's what it looks like to be trusting and relying on God. Fearing God and obeying Christ. Let's consider those briefly in turn. To fear God means to factor God into every thought, action, and situation. To live in the reality of God. The fear of God is a radical God awareness that shapes all your thoughts, actions, and behaviors. It's a spiritual mindedness that takes into account what pleases God and what displeases God. It's to be desirous of pleasing him in all things. And this desire, this God awareness, it both helps us flee sin and pursue righteousness. Consider our awarenesses of people in this way. I was thinking of, imagine a dating couple. One is going to visit the parents for the very first time. They're aware of the parents there. They are desirous of pleasing them, and therefore there's things they avoid. They're going to be careful with their manners, not to say or do anything rude, not to do anything offensive, because they're aware that these people I care to please are there. And they might even proactively want to help clearing the dishes, help uh, be profuse in their thanks for the meal, because they're aware of the presence of one with whose opinion they hold in high regard. And in a much greater way, when we have the fear of God, a radical God awareness, 
we know God is there. How could I go to that sin? God is there. How could I not seek to give myself for the good of others? The fear of God. When you trust God, when you are relying on him, you are living with a radical awareness of his presence. And how do you cultivate this sort of awareness? How do you become a radically God-centered person? Well, look at the example of Christ we were given in our text. How did Christ prepare his God-awareness to face a life of suffering? He said, morning by morning, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. If you want to know how to continually walk the day with God, you have to learn to begin the day with God. Every morning, like Jesus, we need to hear that word that sustains the weary. Every morning, we need to have our hearts oriented to God. And I find this a helpful thought, just these two ideas, two ways which you could take away to orient your heart every, every morning towards God. Every morning, seek to orient your heart towards thankfulness. To be thankful for every good or gracious thing you experience in the day, every good conversation, every good taste of food. If thankfulness is coming from your heart, that's a God awareness, a radical thankfulness to God whenever anything good happens. And secondly, to orient your heart towards prayerfulness, towards a quickness to ask for God's help in anything we're going to be facing, a quick prayer that goes up to heaven, and whenever we're coming to any sort of trying situation or important task, if we could live the day thankfully and prayerfully, we'd be practicing more and more the fear of the Lord. And more than just fearing God, he says, who fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? We show forth our trust and reliance in God, not only by fearing him, but also by keeping the commands of Christ. How do you know you really trust someone? You really trust someone when you do what they say, right? Uh, we know some people trust doctors more than others, uh, but the ones that really trust doctors will follow the doctor's instructions and prescriptions. They will, the more you trust them, the more you will follow to the letter everything they tell you. And now, Jesus is not a doctor that could, could potentially err in his judgments, but he's the divine physician whose Every prescription he gives us is for our health, our spiritual life, and flourishing. And so how could we not be excited to see what Christ commands us? To look for every command in his word as an opportunity for joy. John says his commandments are not burdensome. They are for our good. Daily bring your heart under the lordship of Christ, seeking to please him in all things. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. In God, we have salvation and deliverance. Hope for this life isn't going to come from moral optimism or technological optimism. There's no ultimate hope in your family or in your finances. Hope is only and ultimately found in the servant the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. The only, alter the only other alternative to Christ's light is human light, which really is darkness. And so we remember the warning with which we began from verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire, by the torches that you've kindled, 
but this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. In the end, the way of self-light, self-reliance, is the way of death and destruction. So we don't follow the light within. We follow the light without. The sure light, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, don't trust yourself, but trust God. Take him at his word, because Jesus told us the truth. Don't rely on yourself, but rely on God. Live every day thankfully and prayerfully. Don't fear man, but fear God, seeking to please him in all things. Follow after God. Because God is the one that is utterly trustworthy. He is our redemption. And God hasn't abandoned this dark world. God hasn't cast off humanity. And if you want the proof, you have to look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave himself in Christ, and he gave his back to the smiters. He gave his beard, his face to those who pluck out the beard, that we might be delivered, that sinners like you and I might be saved. God has already given his all. How will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? And if God has already given himself to you, how could you not also give yourself wholly to him? This Christian life is the only life worth living, the life of radical reliance on our redeeming God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that even though you had every right to abandon us to the darkness, you have brought us light in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've shown us the way of salvation and everlasting joy. And you lead us into your very presence, into your dwelling. Lord, we ask for greater strength to be weak. Greater strength to give up and rely on you. To trust your grace, knowing that in vain is the hope of man. And that we would put all our hope in the God who saves, the God who heals, the God who restores, the God who has the words that sustain the weary, the God who gave himself for us that we might be saved. Lord, would we give ourselves up to you entirely, surrender ourselves in total obedience, cultivate a heart that is aware of your presence, that acknowledges you in all things thankfully, that requests your help prayerfully and seeks to obey our Christ faithfully. We want to live as your people and know the joy of having God as our God. Lord, we pray these things in the name and on the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.